Hey, Stephanie, I just read that the earth is flat. Is that true? Um, I'm not sure. Let me check. Uh, yep, it's flat. And apparently the government is full of oh, lizards. Wow, they never taught us that at school. Plus, I just read that you're a hologram. Oh, no. jokes aside the information landscape has changed a lot in the last decade people have more access to information than ever and from more diverse sources but it's hard to know what to trust and how to approach teaching research in all of our disciplines we all rely on research scientific studies and the opinions of experts in our classrooms this week we've invited a librarian and a journalism student to share their experiences perspectives and suggestions for how to develop critical information literacy in ourselves and in our students Um, I'm Camila Jenkin. I'm one of the librarians on campus. I'm the outreach librarian, and I'm also ECC alum. Hi, I'm Walter J. Jr. I am a student here at El Camino College. I write for the college publication, The Union, and the college magazine here, Warrior Life. Um, and I'm so excited to be here today. Camila, can you explain to us what critical information literacy is? Um, Yes, thank you for that. Um, so first up, can I say that in trying to prepare for this question, um, I was definitely feeling kind of insane because um, I was feeling that that meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where the guy's just like looking at the at the wall map and saying, aha. Um, so I definitely felt that way trying to prepare because um, let me say that I'm, I'm brand new to this style of pedagogy and thinking, um, brand new. So you're gonna learn about it at the same time as me. <laughs> Um, so basically, um, critical information literacy, as different from information literacy itself, um, is that uh, we want to try and go beyond the skills of how to find and evaluate information to instead consider um, all the social, like political, economic, and especially corporate power structures that influence the production of information and how people consume it. So that's like a whole mouthful. Um, but I have many examples to kind of, kind of help me understand it. And um, I can talk a lot about that. Um, so basically there's a little bit of background here, um, which I hope I can share to give you a little peek behind the scenes as to how we teach in the library and what guides us. Um, so basically back in 2000, um, our guiding professional organization, um, ACRL, Association of College and Research Libraries, came up with this uh, kind of rubric for how we teach called the standards of information uh, competency. And um, it was definitely like based on a lot of skills learning, a lot of competency learning. So how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you search a browser? How do you search a database? Um, and uh, as kind of time went on, a lot of people started to want something that really uh, was a little more conceptual. So then in 2016, right about the time I was getting my master's of library science, um, they, our professional organization came out with a new guiding kind of pedagogical structure for us called the framework of information literacy. And this became a lot more conceptual where um, it asked librarians to uh, investigate how information is created. And it asked uh, librarians to co-investigate with their students um, how do we know what's credible and how do we know what authority is and questions like this, which were uh, more fulfilling. But then even beyond that, there were a lot of librarians and professionals who said, that's great, but 
even that is not specifically tied to social justice. And that's where critical information literacy comes in, that it's really infusing library instruction and learning and information literacy with social justice concepts. Um, and it's like explicitly tying those two things together. Um, and one of the hallmarks of it is um, that libraries cannot be neutral. And there's definitely been a shift in that in the profession over many, many decades. Um, and, and I was always like, I should make clear that I became a librarian in 2016 and got my first professional job in 2017. So I've not experienced personally a lot of the things that I'm talking about, but I've learned about them and I'm really interested in learning about them. Um, so that's kind of a hallmark that libraries cannot be neutral. Um, libraries need to understand how they participate in systems of oppression. That's a big hallmark of critical information literacy. Um, and I have some really interesting examples on that, which I can't wait to share because um, um, uh, they always uh, they always blow my mind when I hear about them. Um, and cr critical information literacy is really about libraries uh, embracing social justice um, and being the catalyst for change that they want to be. Um, and and so therefore, it's a great way to connect with other faculty who also value social justice concepts because now um, they uh, the faculty and librarians can fuse those kind of um, their classes together by using this common thread. Um, okay, so one of the examples that I was reading about recently that kind of uh, really, really spoke to me was um, I was reading an article about a library instructor who asked their students to look at the library classification system that we use as if they were far future anthropologists. So she, uh, they, they, not she, they told them um, to imagine they were anthropologists from the year like 31 to 70, like a very, very far future. And to look at how we classify information and then draw conclusions based on what we prioritize and what they see in our classification. Um, so a little bit of background, as an academic library, we use a classification system called Library of Congress, uh, not the Library of Congress, like the place, but um, a system called the same title. And um, the way it structures information uh, says a lot about how it says a lot about its creation, definitely from a Western perspective. Um, and it's some things that I'm gonna go into a little more detail on. But I thought that question was so interesting and I actually can't wait to ask some students that if they looked at our collections as far future anthropologists, what would it seem like we value? Um, what information would it seem that we spotlight? Um, and one like really kind of uh, basic uh, example of that is um, just how we classify uh, history, for example. Um, and that's a, that's the D section in a, an academic library. Um, if you were to go into the D section, the history section, you'd see that a lot of the Western world is broken up very in a lot of detail. Um, Britain, Central Europe, Austria, every country has its own classification. But when you get to Asia, it's all lumped together. Like why? Why did um, when this when Library Congress was being set up or amended, why is Asia all one classification? Why isn't it broken up the same way that Europe is? Um, same with Africa. Why is Africa just one classification when Europe is 10 classifications, if not more? Um, so that kind of gets at what critical information literacy is. It's asking beyond just how do I use information and how do I use the library, it's asking the why, why are things structured this way? 
Um, so one question that I want to investigate actually, and this is something I want to look at kind of on my own time, um, is, uh, and it goes hand in hand with critical information literacy, is what was the process like when um, Chicana O studies entered um, library classifications, when it started being classified? What was the process of that being offered in universities? And what was that process like of advocating for Chicana O studies? Um, I find that really fascinating. And I know that in libraries, there's actually currently a lot of activism around the words used to describe these studies in our Library of Congress classification system. Because up until shockingly recently, um, Library of Congress still used the term illegal aliens to define these subjects. And um, that it, it's it's really mind boggling sometimes. Um, but the, recently there was there's been a lot of activism around this, led by students, led by librarians, led by a lot of people, um, and, and and how they uh, tackle the process of trying to introduce other words into the system that we use, the system that defines everything about how our library is structured. Um, so that's something that um, I see as kind of an, a step for me and. In learning about critical information literacy, I kind of want to explore this and understand not just how to find information on this topic, but why is it structured the way it is, and what does that say about what the institution values? Um, there's also a really interesting uh, discussion going around right now among librarians and in listservs, actually, and that's about the database CQ Researcher, which I have recommended a lot and a lot of people use. Um, and I always thought was great and, you know, still has like, you know, um, you know, has a lot of like merit and everything, but there's been a discussion recently where a librarian started to realize that a lot of the headline, uh, a lot of the titles in CQ Researcher were centering the wrong part of the article. So for instance, I think this librarian specifically saw this in articles about um, policing in America and topics related to that where um, and about immigration at the US-Mexico border. So in articles like that, people started seeing, wait, like why is this article written from this specific perspective? That doesn't seem to make sense. And why is this article in supposedly such a reputable source um, structured in a way that doesn't seem to make sense if you're looking at this through a social justice lens? Um, and so that is going on right now, like boiling in the librarian list serves. And it's so interesting, but this is, this is exactly what I think critical information literacy is. It's asking these questions. And instead of just saying, we always trust the databases and you know all these forms, well, why? What is the process behind their creation? And you know, understanding that there are still flaws. Um, I, I just think it's, that's kind of the work um, that is both really interesting and really necessary. Um, and also uh, librarians were seeing um, articles uh, in this particular, in this particular uh, discussion, articles on vaccines where CQ researcher often presents like a pro-con argument section. And uh, there was one part of, this, of the pro-con argument that was written by um, and again, with, with uh, this is not like published information. This is kind of like anecdotal from listservs. It was published by the president of the National Vaccine Information Center, which is a misinformation site. Um, and that calls into question its credibility, which is really kind of surprising and shocking. And I've recommended CQ researchers so many times, but suddenly now it seems that part of their article is written by someone who is deeply involved in a misinformation site. And um, 
yeah, those kind of questions, which I think is uh, what's forming a lot of this conversation and what I'm always interested in, talk in talking about. So I hope that kind of long explanation gets at the heart of what critical information literacy is. Um, and I cannot wait to hear from Walter more about this topic because I think he has some amazing insights. Um, so I can't wait to hear that. Yes, actually, Walter, when was the first time you were introduced to critical information literacy or even academic research? And what was that like? I mean, that's a great question, Stephanie. I think for me personally, there's like two moments that I can vividly remember um, critical information and, and, and like, you know, the literacy around it. The first was um, the washing away of the ignorance of something as simple as Christopher Columbus. I think since I was a child, I was told the stories of the Nina, the Maria, the, the, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. And like, you know, and, and I remember the first day I stepped into a college at El Camino reading Howard Zinn's, um, you know, history. And I thought, wait, what? This is what happened? Like, I can't, this, th it, what is right? Is this right? Was what I, I grew up with knowing right? And I remember, you know, um, that moment so vividly i mean it still impacts uh, my life to this day um and you know i rem there's these two moments one is where i am a consumer of critical information and one is now as a journalist it's my responsibility to write and create um and put critical information out into the world and it's my responsibility to do it and the moment i remember um, you know, that moment is the first journalism class I took. Uh, I, I was taking a summer class with press, Professor Kate McLaughlin, um, and it was a, a course on um, media and culture around journalism, essentially uh, a, a journalism literacy class, if you will, about, you know, how media is cultivated, the narrative, stuff like that. And I remember this part of the class where um, they were talking about um, Pulitzer, the renowned journalist prize, the like the creme de la creme of prizes that you get in journalism, and how he started off and and amassed his fortune and power through a tabloid, and now he's the highest bar for ethical journalism, and that all kind of happened towards the later stages of his life where he started investing in journalism schools and all this stuff, and and I thought. And that was the other moment where I was like, wait, what? And, you know, that stoked a like a question in me where I was like, if I'm going to be a journalist, even before I came to the, the realization of if I'm going to be a journalist, it was as a consumer of media, how do I know what is credible? How do I know what source is telling me the truth? How do I know if Pulitzer can go from a tabloid to being the standard for journalism integrity if christopher columbus can be go from this person that was you know the what i thought was the savior and founder of america that gave me the right to you know be a part of this country and be born here and, and all of that stuff to being you know somebody that committed genocide and slaughtered all these indigenous people i thought where do i know what do I know and do I even really know anything? And I think that question is what kind of pushed me into journalism because I realized that it was kind of my responsibility to try to help push the pendulum back to the middle. And I think 
you know, something that we kind of already talked about is how it is really difficult to find unbiased, you know, critical information literacy, especially in the libraries. But I think that's true across the board. I think even in journalism, we're constantly striving to find the middle, except for some publications that like to, you know, sensationalize things for clicks and views and stuff like that. We'll talk about it later. But I think in the purest sense of journalism, you're trying to push that you know, try to find that middle ground. And I feel like as a journalist, my responsibility is to kind of try to push that pendulum back to the middle. Um, and, you know, those are kind of the first two moments in my life where I was kind of introduced to critical, critical information literacy. And I thought, okay, I have to do more research. I have to um, find out more. It is my responsibility as a consumer and as an author to seek out the truth and make sure that I'm knowledgeable. And if, especially if I'm um, distilling that information and, and spreading it to others, that it is accurate and factual and it is as unbiased and, and as ethical as possible those two points in your journey for understanding critical information literacy are really great examples that speak to the need for understanding these things. And one of our jobs as instructors uh, to teach students how to consider their sources, but also to consider the production, right? Not just like the name on the source, but what went into making the source? What context does the source exist in? And what other information does it interact with? And you mentioned that you really learning about the two extreme differences in the stories that you were hearing that couldn't be reconciled. I really wonder when you say it, it caused you to do your own research and to go further into it. What did you, what were some of the big things you learned from trying to, you know, to, for lack of a better term, for trying to seek out the truth between what appeared to be two extreme interpretations? One of the things that I really learned, and, and, and I'll break it down into the two parts, which if you really think about it, there are two big moments in my life, but they're bookended both by educators. So you're, if you're talking elementary school education, you're talking about my second grade, third grade teachers talking about Christopher Columbus in a romanticized ideal way that, you know, my, which made me believe that narrative. And then it's bookended by another educator in college that talked to me about Christopher Columbus and the truth of it and, and, and what actually happened or according to Howard Zinn, what actually happened. And, and I think if you really look at for your, for everyone in this room who is an educator, one of the, the hallmarks of how to get this message across is not actually the information that's being conveyed, but actually the conduit through which it's, it's being conveyed. So as an educator, if your student trusts you inherently, if they believe you inherently, if they feel that you are credible as a human being, then what you say will therefore be credible. And, and I think the and if you could look at even in my narrative, as factual as one scenario was, and as much of, if you want to call it propaganda, another scenario was, I believed it complicit 
explicitly, not because of the information, but because the conduit through which it was given to me. So I think as educators, just like as a journalist, it is my responsibility to try to find the truth. It is an educator's responsibility, in my opinion, to try to be truthful with their students about everything because, because what you say after that will be absorbed or will not be absorbed by, by um, students. I don't know if that really answered your question, Chris, but that's kind of where I was thinking. Oh, no, I think, I think it did. I, I thought it was great. Okay. Hey, Walter, I want to thank you for that Howard Zinn reference. That oh, really no problem, made my day. I'm happy to do it. Really made my day. <laughs> I have a question for Camila, though. Uh, so, Camila, what, what seems different about the information landscape now than in past years? That's a great question. Um, so, I think there's, there's so much that's different, but there are some weird things that are the same. Um, and I'm always, I'm always surprised by what they are. Um, so I guess one of the major differences, I guess it seems kind of obvious, but I think it does have a huge impact is if sufficiently, if far enough back in the past, people really only had access to a few news sources, like a few newspapers, a few channel stations on TV, a few radio stations. Um, and I've heard, I, I, I like this model where um, I've heard it said that uh, in the past, it was more on the information sources to be gatekeepers of information. So the newspapers, the, the radio stations, they would be the gatekeepers and the filters in many cases. But now when creating information is so easy and accessible and absolutely anybody can do it, um, it's more like people have to be their own filters. And I think that's the big change. Um, that it went from a lot of things being kind of filtered for you for good or bad you know i mean that also means a lot of things could be kept from you or suppressed or censored to now you have to be your own filter and the problem is the, the skills to be a filter in today your, to be your own filter in today are bonkers i mean um it's um so i actually have uh, like a story I recently read to kind of illustrate this and I read this a couple of days ago it blew my mind I should have known it was re it, that it could happen but it's still uh it shocked me to my core um so there's a this article currently on NPR called we tracked down a fake news creator in the suburbs here's what we learned by Laura Seidel and basically I think this speaks really clearly to what is different about information now um uh, this NPR team, they uh, back, you know, uh, a few a few years ago, um, I think this is back in, I believe, 2016 or 17. Um, I could double check that, though. Um, they decided to track a, um, a false, like, mis uh, disinformation source back to its root. So they set about doing that, and they found that they, they found this false, web, uh, false newspaper called, I believe, the Denver Guardian. It was publishing just completely fabricated stories. They traced it back to um, a single person, this guy who was, um, who was creating the site. And when they asked him about his motivations, um, he said that he it was not it, his ideal his ideology. He was not believing the stories he was fabricating. He was doing it because he knew that the more the the crazier he made things, um, the more people would click. And he had ads on his page, and he was making a massive amount of money. Um, and and he had people um, uh, like a, he had like a team of freelancers 
And he had people who would go into onto Facebook and social media and see these articles so that they would take off. And then he would get a ton of ad money. And they even asked him, they said, I mean, do you believe in what you're writing? And he's like, no, actually, it's complete opposite of what I believe, but this is how I make my money. And um, I thought that was, I, that was so um, just bonkers to me. I thought that that was a newspaper that people believed. And it was just somebody in his house writing fake things to get ad money. And that was it. And then and people believed these stories. Um, and yeah, so I think that kind of illustrates a lot of what is different now. Um, and I would love to hear from Walter, like anything you know about, like, you know, the, the crux of marketing and journalism. I just think that's so fascinating. Um, how do you maintain, you know, integrity when, when, so many publications have to make their money by by clicks and by ads. Um, yeah, so that's kind of um, what I think is different uh, now than in the past. Um, there's some things that are the same actually. Oh, this is something I brought up recently in one of my uh, embedded librarian classes. Um, I talked about something called the attention economy. And this is something that is actually has not changed that much. And the attention economy refers to how um, uh, your attention is one of the most valuable resources that um, is, is around and it could be monetized, right? So um, what that means is now everything's competing for your eyeballs and um, only one thing can get it at a time. So there's really only one winner at a time and everything um, from YouTube to you know um, publications to Netflix, uh, the, their purpose is that you watch it and so that they get your attention. Um, but I, I learned that that's really not that different to back in the early 20th century, um, uh, some journalistic practices, which uh, involved a lot of sensationalism when um, publications would print the most sensational story they could think of to get to get readers and the similarity was also just so so interesting to me I thought I thought wow this is this is not new but it is because of social media and internet it's a lot bigger now <laughs> I mean there's so many things that I want to kind of cycle back to the that you said and, and I love um all the things you talked about first thing I want to talk about is really you kind of talked about how um you know news has to be their own gatekeepers I just want to any of my fellow collegiate peers that are kind of listening and they're like, hey, uh, why do I need to vote? Why, why does any of that stuff matter? A lot of this stuff is entrenched in Reaganomics of the 1980s where, um, you know, even, even the 24-hour news cycle was, was, the inception of that was through cable news that was trying to be provided for people in mountain communities and it was being regulated just as journalism was. And then um, Ronald, President Ronald Reagan deregulated that. And then that was kind of the inception of cable television, which then became the inception of cable news. So there are certain things that, you know, sometimes as young people, you might be like, well, how is this going to affect me? It might not affect you today, but it might affect you not only today, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, because once you open Pandora's box, once you set um, things on a certain path, it's much, much harder to turn it around than to come back. 
So that's just my little anecdotal thing to kind of talk about, um, you know, news media, um, you know, regulating themselves and, and, you know, being ethical. You kind of talked about how um, news publications back in the day would write all these sensationalized things. One, that's still happening, but two, um, in the inception of news publications, it became um, a, a rush to try to get to the most sensationalized headlines. I'm talking about early, early, early on in um, the 20th century. So people would just try to outdo each other. And then finally, the New York Times thought, instead of trying to tabloid, instead of trying to operate like a tabloid, let's put all of our money into finding the truth, finding the story, um, research, and really trying, you know, having correspondence in different parts of the world and, and actually getting to the bottom of the story. And then for now, for over 100 years, they've kind of become the gold standard of news publications within the journalistic community, and they've kind of held fast to that. So I think um, as long as people put money behind anything, kind of like we talked about, um, um, industry is going to respond to that. You know what I mean? And 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 as long as people um, click through and read stuff that is just sensationalized stuff, um, and that generates revenue, then that's what they're going to do. There's a lot of, um, you know, extremely right publications or news outlets like Fox News and extremely left news outlets like MSNBC and and all those things that are trying to, um, you know, stimulate their base, for lack of a better word, because it is the most profitable uh, revenue chain for them. Um, So I think, one, if, you know, if we want there to be ethical um, you know, integrity and ethics in um, critical information and journalism and just information that's being disseminated to the masses, then we need to support that kind of, you know, the industries that are actually doing that, the entities and bodies that are really just doing that. Those are all really good points. And I, I can definitely remember growing up the news or information that I, you know, perceived as credible or as fact-based sort of changed from television news, newspapers to suddenly, you know, cable news online and all this stuff. And I think one of the challenges that we face as teachers when trying to help our students become literate in information and be able to be to think about it critically is that it's not a simple concept, right? It's not something that you can tell students in one lesson and they can get, and it's not because they're not smart, it's because it's difficult and there's so many competing incentives involved. I mean, when I was starting college, they would tell us you can't believe anything you read on the internet. And of course, I understood why they said that, but they, that wasn't true. Even back, even back in the Wild West days of the internet, internet 1.0, still there were certain things being leaked, like we were you know, seeing things about what was really happening in the Iraq war online that would never be printed anywhere because of the censors that were in the embedded journalists uh, there. So I think that what we struggle with is this idea that even though um, even though news outlets need to be questioned and even though all these things need to be put through the ringer 
of uh, checks and balances. They need to be thought about critically. There's also a danger in telling our students not to trust anything or anybody, right? Because then we also get information things where it's like, well, I'm going to try, you know, pouring bleach down my throat to cure COVID and stuff like this, where it's based on, you know, maybe zero information. So it's it's a hard balance um, to give to our students, especially when you know we're not neutral objects, you know, we're not perfect people who are not affected by the information landscape, right? We're in, we're affected by our own confirmation bias, our own um, blind spots. So I just wondered how both of you thought we could teach and effectively, you know, help our students build those critical thinking skills in 2021 in this really complex media environment that they're in. Um, well, can I say that this is the question I ask myself before crying in the mirror every day? Like, no joke. <laughs> I'll wake up and be like, what is credibility? And I'm like, I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> um, you know, I think we've definitely kind of, um, with, with many things that Walter especially said, um, definitely kind of getting to the heart of this. But to me, I think the, the, the cornerstone of teaching credibility and critical thinking is to question the motivation of everything. Um, and like there are many tools to do that. Like I use a list of the five W's, like question who wrote this, when there, there are that tool, there's um, there's a tool going around line, online right now called the SIFT method, which is helping people on social media debunk like false COVID information. So there are all these tools, but at the heart of all those tools is questioning the motivation. And Chris, I think you're totally right that um, it's also not great to then say, well, distrust everything, just just shut everything out. That's not the answer. Um, but the answer is to question everything. And obviously, like, um, I get news, I read newspapers, and because I got to get my news from somewhere, and um, it, it works out, you know, but I'm always questioning, even with the sources that I trust, like, I read the LA Times, I read the New York Times, I read a, I read a smattering of a lot of things. Um, but I still question everything. And even when I read the LA Times, I still say, well, why did they word that headline that way? What does that mean? Um, why did they put this article above that one? And I still ask that. Um, and even if it doesn't change that I'm reading that newspaper, um, it keeps me always thinking about credibility. Thank you so much, Kamala. Um, <laughs> I'd like to answer your question. Um, one, was completely right you have to ask the five w's you know who what where when why why is who's writing this why is it being written what is the purpose what is the intent when was it written all those things but i think when i'm thinking about it from a student perspective and you're an educator my perspective isn't as much as okay everyone do the five is that going to resonate with me as a student is that going to penetrate on a surface level? Is that going to be something that is going to be, is that going to affect me in a way that it will change the way that I approach media or information? I don't know. And I think if we're going to fight fire, then I think we need to use fire. And something that all of these um, companies are doing is they're using social engineering. They're using um, things that you know, they're, they're literally distilling a person into, you know, binary data and trying to figure out what makes them tick, what gets 
a response out of them, what things they like, what things they dislike, and using that to really um, influence them. And I know we don't have big data at our fingertips as educators, unless you guys do, and I don't know about it. <laughs> um, I think what you what we need to do, or what I would say as a student, what would really work on me is put me in a scenario where what you're trying to teach me is affecting. One of the, you know, um, one of the classes I took um, in my undergrad was a class about diversity in America. And the simple class was if you have brown eyes, you get all this special treatment. And if you have blue eyes, you got treated not so well in the class for that class. And that to this day resonates with me. And, and I get the message that was behind it, but it resonated with me because it put me into a visceral situation where it is more than words on a page. It is more than a piece of homework. It is more than something that I need to do. It had an impact on me. And I think if we're going to try to teach students and young people um, about seeking out the truth, then you need to find a way to give that lesson in a way that is impactful and impacts them. Um, and I just kind of want to cycle back to something that Camilla said earlier about, um, you know, the difference, you know, my two worlds of marketing and journalism. Um, I have a bachelor in science in marketing and, you know, I have an associate's degree in journalism. And, um, you know, those are two worlds that are constantly trying to compete with one another. I feel that the marketing side of me is trying to say, like, get as many eyeballs on this, but the journalistic side of me is like, but let's do this in an ethical way. And I'm happy to say that it's something that more often than not, the journalistic side wins because I understand the power of um, if someone feels that you're a credible source um, and you put out something haphazardly or or unethically or without fairness, um, it can really, really not only affect you and damage you, your credibility for everything else that you write after that, but also, you know, affect the people that are reading it, affect the person that you're writing this about, whoever it may be. So I, I kind of hope that kind of answers your question. I'm really loving this conversation because um, we are getting to talk about some really cool things. And really quick, Walter, um, the brown eye, was that, are you talking about the uh, Jane Elliott experiment, the exercise, the blue eye, brown eye? Yeah, that, yeah. That, yeah, it's it's a it's an older experiment, but you know, and it's still you know, it still was very very impactful. Um, if I can chime in real quick, um, I just want to say that Walter, you like absolutely hit on something that is a cornerstone of critical information literacy, and it just totally resonated with me. Um, you talked about having students viscerally feel these these lessons and be involved and stimulated and that's definitely what drew me to the practice of critical information literacy that um it can it can be easy and there definitely is a history you know um of having kind of demonstration based library classes and um 
you know, that's definitely what I practiced. It's, um, this is all a process of learning, but I got to a place where I thought, I want the students to talk in the class more than I'm talking. I want them to be creating information and, um, and picking this apart. And so that you hit on this so perfectly, that that is what, what motivated me, um, that I wanted my students to speak like you're speaking, to say, um, I was like, completely involved in this process. I was the expert in the class. Um, the teacher gave me like the platform to showcase my expertise, my knowledge. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say like that was, uh, it spoke so perfectly to I think what, I think a lot of librarians feel as the motivation to adopt critical information literacy as a teaching practice. That she's absolutely right. And, and this is why educators have to wear so many hats. It's, it's more than just curriculum and lessons plans, right? You, you have to, understand um, your students. You have to have some kind of understanding of psychology. You have to understand, um, you know, leadership skills and, and what it takes to kind of create an environment where um, education can thrive because it's this, it's this fragile thing that almost if you whisper too hard, it could completely fall apart and, and you want to nurture that. And, and I just wanted to say, I agree with Camilla. What Camila, well, actually, what both of you guys are saying really resonates with me. Uh, I love what Camila said about you know creating information, students creating information, right? And and as a staff teacher, and that, that's that's the direction I'm going. And and um, but also, Camila, you also mentioned earlier about this idea of, of embracing social justice and activism for that, which really picks back well with what Walter was saying about you know seeking out the truth. And what I try to do in my stats class is, is I try to teach, I'm not sure if teach is the right word, but I try to expose my students uh, to statistical studies and, and giving them the opportunity to like critically analyze the weaknesses of these studies. And so they can conduct their own studies in an unbiased manner. This whole idea of taking out the truth in math, I think um, in a stats class, I think is it's something that's, that's doable and should be done because you're giving students the opportunity to to pursue uh, statistical studies in a social justice manner, to, to, to expose and to, to explore by collecting data, you know, um, differences, uh, racialized achievement differences. Which brings me to my question here is, how can teachers across the curriculum, math, STEM, otherwise everywhere, anywhere, incorporate more research into their classes what are the merits of incorporating you know, more research? And why should everyone do it? I mean, Art, I think if we're talking about you know, incorporating research and, and the merits of it, right? Um, let's first kind of talk about you know, the merits of it, because why, you know, why talk about why we should if there's no merit to it? So you know, if, if you're talking about social justice um, and through that vein talking about um, these kinds of things, it, I think it really starts with having the class be represented through the voices that you're hearing. And, I, and this might not directly apply to a statistics class, but let's just say, for example, I am taking an English 1A class, a class that every college student has to take. If everything that I'm reading is by Nathaniel Hawthorne or um, other white authors, am I really going to connect that material? Am I going to see myself in the humanities? Am I going to see myself 
in that subject matter? Probably not. Is it going to resonate with me? Maybe not. And I think where it really, you know, why it's important is because if we're going to talk about getting students to connect, we've talked about a lot of things, but if we're going to talk about why we want students to believe in educators and believe in the educator's credibility so that an educator can distill credible information to them. If we want to talk about why um, we want a student to engage and be visceral with the lesson plan of a classroom, um, then we really have to talk about, you know, does a student feel welcome in that classroom? And, and, I, and I don't mean it, you know, in a passive aggressive way or microaggressions or anything like that. I just mean like, do they feel represented in that classroom? And I think that is really the advantage of doing research. So doing research and finding things that kind of speak to the student population. I mean, the, the majority of the El Camino population is Latinx. I mean, it, it is, is each, it, our curriculums kind of looking at that, our, our study plans looking at that. And I think to kind of go to the first part of it is like, what's the benefit of it is you get kids to buy in, you get students to buy in, you get, once students feel that a lesson plan, a class, an educator, this learning environment is not only reflective of who they are as people, but also is exploring other facets of, of things that they didn't know about, then I think that's when you can act try to learn. And I think, you know, the carrot is kind of getting students to buy into that. Um, I love that. Yeah. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, the way I think about it, so much of that resonated with me and made me think, um, th think about this. But I think that one of the really great aspects of incorporating more research into a student's academic journey is I almost, think it, I almost think it lessens the power power imbalance dynamic between experts and students. And I did quotation marks there because you can't see me. Um, and I think that so many students um, are used to being um, to, to being on the on you know the one side of that power dynamic where they are their voices are less important, less you know valued than the experts' voices, and. Um, that's something I, I really try to challenge where um, I see with, with when I work with students, when I uh, do like um, other things on campus. But I think that um, lessening that power disparity between experts and students also helps challenge like this banking method of teaching where um, experts just pour out into students, goes expert to student, expert to student. And I think that incorporating more research um, it helps students take some of that power and it makes them stakeholders in topics that they care about. Um, and it teaches them that their voices are important. Um, and this is something that we actually, uh, we actually talk about in, the, I'm on a committee on campus for, um, where we talk about academic integrity and plagiarism and, and topics like this. And um, what we did this over the past year or so, we've been developing uh, a way to, um, uh, share with students, you know, one, how to avoid plagiarism issues so they don't like, so nothing bad happens, but also to encourage like positive 
academic practices. And part of that is teaching students that professors want to hear their voice. We don't need to hear the voices of the experts that they're citing, because that's where so much of pl um, plagiarism issues come about when students overcite experts and they over rely on experts and you know, not sure how to cite them. But so much of that, of creating that module for students um, has been us behind the scenes as educators saying, no, we need to let students know and reaffirming them that their voice is really, really important. That's what we, that's what we want to hear. And I think that practicing research really helps contribute to students understanding that about themselves. What I hear you guys say is, um, is, is the classroom has, is, is the opportunity for the space for students to, um, to be a force for positive change in original work original research. Yeah, definitely. Um, I love how you phrase that, for sure. Yeah, or, or, I completely agree. And, and then I think we have such a unique opportunity, right? I, I think being part of a community college um, is such a great chance for us. Let me go back. You know, we have a great opportunity because I feel like community colleges are like the last frontier for the democratization of education. You know what I mean? There is nowhere else where elitism and who you are and the amount of money you make or your social or political connections can affect your education. And this is the last frontier, the last stand where education is available for all, regardless of where you come from, your socioeconomic background, all of that stuff. So I, I think, you know, even more so than the big four-year universities and stuff like that, we have access to such unique and diverse voices and minds. And I think, you know, that really gives us an opportunity to really cultivate something wonderful um, here at the community college level. Completely agree, Walter. Sorry, go ahead, Nancy. I was just going to chime in that I, I um, Camila, when you were talking about, um, really talking about student buy-in and, and research, and, and, uh, and Walter, you spoke about this as well. I was just thinking on my own practice, and just from the instructor perspective, you know, in English classes, we have a a required um, research paper for English 1A and English 1C. And, you know, there's sort of this unspoken rule about, you know, research papers have to all be very objective, but, you know, quotes again, what is objective, right? Um, and I, I've sort of had this sense in recent years along the lines of what you said about plagiarism, but just getting more student buy-in and, um, you know, so for me this year, I've pivoted that research assignment and required students to have a personal connection with what they're writing about. And they have to justify why they've chosen the topic they've chosen. And it, for English 1C, it could be related to a, a career path, but it could be an avocation or a social justice issue or whatnot. And um, they're just starting on this now, but it's, I, I appreciate what you said because it sort of validates what I was sensing as a need. And even my students' argument um, essays, they were a lot of them were writing about language, sort of a broad topic. 
and I have so many bilingual students and I kept saying, you know, tie yourself into this if you can, um, you know, if you have experience or observations and it just made for much more rich writing um, where students were talking about, well, you know, my family all is fluent, you know, they're all fluent Spanish speakers and I'm not fluent and then would tie it into bilingualism or, you know, um, communities speaking a common language or not. And student talked about visiting her family in Sri Lanka and understanding what they were saying and how important that was um, for, um, for her to learn about her culture and learn about her family. And so I, I just appreciate you saying that because I think that there's, I, I've sort of felt like, well, we have to, um, we have to have everything be just objective and based on their, their uh, outside research when I think that having students feel like they have some expertise that's important to share is so valuable for all of these reasons that you've all spoken on, so. I was like, can I just say, I love that so much. I was like, yes. Um, and what I love about the assignment is, yes, you're make, you're letting the students, you're making them experts and they're embracing their own expertise. So yeah, love that. I mean, I just want to add to that, Professor Silver, like you kind of talked about, you know, making, doing this for students. But I also, when, when you were talking about this, I couldn't help but notice the, uh, a parallel that I was seeing. You know, Camilla kind of talked about how experts pouring, um, you know, students sometimes just get poured into by like experts, like this is what's right. This is our, this is where the experts, you do what we say, this is what you should know, this is what you should learn. And it just, it kind of just all came to me that how is that any different than what adjunct professors, part-time professors are feeling through their curriculums or, or, or what they're teaching to their students? If, if a body, an educational body or their higher-ups are saying, you have to teach this, you do not have any freedom to teach anything else, we know better than you, this is all you could teach, then, you know, you could see where the inception of, of this trickle-down effect is coming from. Like, it, if you put a person's livelihood on the line and say, if, if you don't do this, you're not going to work. You're hanging on by a thread. So if you want to, you know, go against the grain, then that's up to you. Um, and, and there's so many things that are interweaved and intertwined in with this conversation, I mean, you could talk about, you know, commercializing education to the point where people need to work to pay off student loans so that in turn, they have to do whatever they have to do to pay student loans to be able to continue to live, you know? And, and there's so many narratives you can talk about. So I think my point of all this is that as a, as a, person who has, who's a minority, but also in some senses I have privilege, I think of what my role is as just a human being. Like, you know, uh, I feel like when I have privilege, it is my obligation to stand for people that don't. You know, when I have a voice, I should stand for the people that don't. And, and you know, I don't want to preach or editorialize, but I think if that same narrative could be kind of, you know, adopted into, you know, one level up and not just students being allies for students, but if teachers could find ways to be more allies 
for other teachers, you know, speak on behalf of that professor that is zigzagging across Southern California, teaching at six different community colleges just to kind of make everything meet, all the ends meet, um, you know, and stuff like that. Because I feel like if you are a tenured professor, you have a little bit more leniency into kind of formulate your curriculums into the way you want. So, you know, maybe that's something that, you know, we could kind of explore, not we as in the amazing people in this room, but, you know, the future of education and, you know, people that are out there. And as an adjunct, I appreciate those comments, by the way, because you're absolutely right. I mean, there is definitely, you know, we, we sort of have to follow the rules or else, you know, we're not going to get classes or, or whatnot. But I, I do think just cycling back to that idea of, of experts and sort of, you know, the professor pouring the information into the student's brain, um, you know, I, I really feel so fortunate, especially in teaching English, because I get to learn so much about my students and I, they educate me on all sorts of topics and I'm, I'm so privileged and, um, you know, I, I just love that. Um, but I think that that perception of, you know, I may be an expert on writing, but I'm not an expert on all these other things that my students are experts on. And I, I think that looking at our interaction with our students through that lens is really important that just, I just happen to know about writing and reading and words and things and but they know about all this other stuff and they, they know a lot about writing and reading and words and things too. But, but I just think if we come at it with that, that understanding that our students know a lot about things that we don't know as much about, it's, uh, it's pretty critical. And I think speaking to that too, you know, um, it's sometimes that, that sort of maybe in doctrine theory or right. the, The view of, um, that is something that is goes both ways and the students have it also because a lot of times when I say no you pick a topic or let's you know explore this or when they come to me with the source and say is this credible um, I'll say I don't know let's look at it together so just just tell me yes or no I'm like I, I can't tell you yes or no you you we've got to do this together I don't know either like let's figure it out together and like no no you would be more of the expert on that than me and they're like well can't you just tell me and I'm like no I can't um, and that's another thing too especially in this idea of the critical information literacy that we find ourselves in um, a lot of times I think we're, we're in it with the students. Things are changing so rapidly and so fast when it comes to how information is delivered. And when, you know, even, even with sources, um, sources will get put up and taken down, you know, every other year. And a, a student will be like, is this a good site? And I'm like, I've never heard of it before. Let's look at it together um, because it had just sprung up at the last whatever. Uh, yeah, and it's, it, and, or, you know, it was fairly reputable, but then something came out and it's not anymore. Um, so it, we're kind of in it with the students and just and also just you know letting the students know that know you um having the right answer isn't always the thing that we're looking for because I don't know if I have the right answers all the time yeah this gets very heavily back into a concept that Walter brought up at the very beginning which is I guess you know if we're going to be academic about it we could call it ethos but we you know as as teachers um if you're if you build a sense of trust in the classroom uh, your students will assign you a certain level of authority. And then, of course, the problem is that we could either basically abuse it, right, and use it in a dictatorial way, or use it in a way just to make our lives easy, or use it in a way to keep things exactly the same. Or we could use it in a way to invite our students into that sphere of, you know, you know, once again, if we're going Foucault, this is the power that we're trying to invite our students 
to, to be a part of, because that's what's really going to pay dividends in the end, right? One of the things, if our students don't become critical thinkers, you know, and obviously one teacher has a small amount of effect on every single student, except in some cases they have a big impact, but you know, it's not like it's one teacher's responsibility to solve every single issue all the time, but imagine what's going to happen if we as educators don't interrupt that stream of things staying the way they are. Well, we don't have to imagine. We know how bad it is. We see it all the time. And so I think there's, there's unfortunately, because of the way some of these structures are built, the incentive is to keep things the same because now that I have a position, I'd rather, you know, just get by so that I don't risk it than to really broaden the power base. And that applies to students, that applies to adjunct professors, that applies to classified staff, coworkers, whoever. And so I think that, you know, one of the things we fight against with information illiteracy or information literacy, right, is that the incentives for us to really aggressively target it are not always there in the immediate, in the here and now. They're not always there in the form of a paycheck. They're not always there in a form of job security, but they are there in the form of human connection. They are there in the form of do you want the world to be a better place, right? Libraries can't be neutral and neither can educators because, I mean, information's not neutral. I'm sure this is a big discussion people have. Information has never been neutral. It is created by people for a purpose. And so uh, this is a really long-winded way for me to get to a question that I've really been dying to ask. So after we've talked about all these things, the, the struggle between uh, the financial aspect of publishing and being able to reach an audience and the ethics that are involved. You know, since Walter, we have the privilege of having you here. I really want to know what is your process for creating a news story when you create information and you sort of build your own authority? How do you do it? I mean, that's a great question, Chris. It is something that um, is ever evolving and constantly learning. Um, If you had asked me this question a week ago, I would have thought maybe this is the way, but it, it, it is um, something that is constantly, constantly evolving. And I think the best way to kind of, you know, boil down how my process goes is to research the story in every way possible. Look at it from every angle available. And, you know, if uh, some of my editors are listening to this, they'll probably be like, is that why you are always submitting things up to the deadline? Um, is that why I'm pulling out my hair and you're turning things exactly at 11.59 p.m.? Um, you couldn't get it to me a couple hours before? Sometimes, no. And, 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 there's, and sometimes other staff writers just want to crank out um, stories. And I applaud them for that. I wish I had that ability to just churn out articles, three sources, slap it together, let's push it out, and what's the next one? But once I start looking into a topic, I can't just kind of just be like, okay, well, what is it? Let me get the thing. Okay, I got, I, I, I did the bare minimum that I needed to do. I will um, start talking to the person. I will interview them multiple times. I will talk to their students. I will, let's say if I'm talking to a professor, I'm, this, this hypothetical in my mind is 
uh, I'm, I'm interviewing a professor for a story, let's say, I would talk to that professor, I would talk to their students, I would interview the professor again, I would try to talk to their higher ups, people that they've worked with, people that they've taken their class before. And that process takes a long time. And, and, and I think that's kind of, um, you know, the thing about trying to seek the truth, it is an instant. You'll never be the first person that comes out with the story and you'll to be right, to get the whole thing. Um, you could be either be first or you could do the work. And, and, and sometimes I feel like it's my responsibility to just try to do the work. So I research, I interview, I talk to, I try to look at the story from every angle possible. I use the professor, but it could be anything. If it could be a body, it could be an entity, it could be student, you know, government, um, I've written stories about um, diversity, equity, and equality in the hiring process for um, the president of the campus to, you know, mental health awareness uh, to, you know, students that have gone through depression, anxiety, and um, suicide. I've written about a lot of stuff, but the thing, the common theme through all of it is I try to find as much research as I can. I try to look at the story from as many angles as I can. Um, and I know it'll never be truly unbiased and truly neutral, like you said, but that's the best way that I could kind of approach it. Um, I have a question for Walter actually, and I've been dying to ask you this. Um, so what goes, th what goes through, as a, as a good news professional, as a journalism professional, what goes through your head when you see news headlines or verbiage or framing that you see is misleading or problematic or clickbaity? I mean, one for me personally, if we're talking personally for myself, um, I feel that it's unethical. Um, I feel that you can, if, if something is newsworthy, as in it is something that people want more information of, there's a way to curate a headline that will, is a summation of that story and a summation of that information without it becoming unethical or clickbaity or, you know, misleading. And I think that's where we're at right now. I think um, another thing is that, you know, in the world, to put on my marketing hat, in the world of marketing, you know, things trend, things, you know, are, you know, viral, you know, and if one person does it and it's successful, that information is as quickly disseminated to their peers and the and other like-minded people doing similar things that then they're like, oh, well, it worked for him. Let me do it too. And I think that's kind of the problem that we're kind of facing a little bit. So it, it really takes people that want to go against the grain a little bit, but also to do what is right. And I, and, and I, and for anybody out there who's listening to this is like, well, if you're telling me that being clickbaity and putting up YouTube videos with titles that are misleading is going to make me money and, um, you know, not doing that is not my retort to that would be, do you want your success to be a comet? flashing across the sky or do you want your success to be kind of like the sun you know what i mean 
something that people could count on like clockwork day in, day out, and it is always a constant? Or do you want to just be a flash in the pan? And yeah, sure, you can make, you know, that will get your clicks and your numbers up and your analytics up. But then you fall into what I call the dominoes paradox. This is something I'm going to bring in my marketing nerd hat on for one second. There's this um, lesson that we learned in marketing school about dominoes, where at one point, somebody at Domino's said, let's put a coupon on the box for pizza. So that when people order a pizza, they have a, you know, that they'll buy more stuff. But the problem is now you will never buy pizza without a discount or a coupon. If someone said, this is full price, you're like, I'll just wait for the coupon. I'll just wait for it to be watered down. And, and once you start down that path, you find out that you're all constantly pursuing how to get more clicks and more clicks and more clicks. And then you find yourself doing things that maybe you weren't comfortable doing. And you find yourself in areas that you never thought you would be in. And that's what I would say to anybody listening to this who thinks, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, let me make a quick, let me make some money doing the quick stuff it works for other people it works for x it works for this person so let me do it and i would say you know the truth and and doing the work there's never been a substitute for doing the work so that's that would be my answer to that in the longest way possible no thank you i love the long answer um thank you so much for that i genuinely wish that content creators could listen to you and um and what you just said um, and, you know, and, and just as like a quick tag on, it reminds me of an article I read recently um, that predicted kind of the future of, vi- you know, news going viral and how um, there's such a temptation now to make these quick sound bitey slogans out of intensely complicated issues. And the example that this article used was Brexit, you know, this catchy, like, cool name for such an intensely emotional and complicated subject, you know, um, and that that's only, and so this article is predicting that's only going to happen more and more and more and more because catchy slogans spread online and in news circles way more quickly than things that aren't um, clickbaity and, and, um, you know, zingy. Um, So that's, that's like a, I get concerned about that a lot. I think you know, you touched on, again, motivation and temptation. And when there's such a temptation, either to get a better job by having your things go viral or getting more clicks and more money, that's such a huge temptation for content creators. And um, yeah, I, I think about this a lot. I don't know if there's an answer, but um, yeah, I'm right there with you and kind of wondering about this topic. I mean, I just want to talk about something you said about breakfast set and mm-hmm. I'll get to that, but just to talk about, you know, the really quick, you know, eight second headline, eight second video, eight second sound bike, you know, we're trying to cut that down and down and down and get people hooked in the first few seconds. I think the thing that a lot of folks might not know is, you know, a lot of these practices are social engineering at its finest. You know what I mean? They are preying upon the nature and circumstances of people in a way that is specifically curated to them. But also what it's doing is it is Pavlovian because it is, it is training people 
to believe that these things that they're seeing so fast, so quick, that without even reading through the article is the entire article, or that's the truth, or it's all been summarized in the headline. And I will take that and go straight into Brexit to kind of talk about, you know, how entities um, like social media platforms are using um, information and, and big data to really be the invisible hand of coercion, for lack of a better term. And what's happening is there is all of this misinformation that is happening in the ad column of Facebook or all these other social media platforms that nobody has access to. There's nobody who, you can't see it. It's not a news publication. You can't go back and be like, this is false news. This is, came from a bad source. There are hyper-targeted ads being funded by any entity, political or government or private entity that they want, and they can to curate whatever narrative they want. And if you look at Brexit, a huge part of Brexit was done through this social media coercion, through advertisements that were specifically targeted to people. And that's what really led to Brexit. If you, there's a amazing, there's some amazing articles about Cambridge Analytica and all these companies that really, really um, were the base of Brexit. And Brexit was really used to try to see if elected officials in America could do something similar like Brexit here as well. And, um, you know, it's there, there's so many things that you could kind of go into and talk about, but I think, you know, things that people don't understand is in the world of marketing, it is almost like the dark web. There are things that are happening that are literally, people are trying to elicit stimuli out of you in a Pavlovian way and condition you so that later down the line, they could make things that maybe you wouldn't have been so easily on board with much, much, much more um, consumable. Um, actually, Walter, can I say that um, when I actually go myself to learn about this topic, when I try to teach my students about um, this topic of investigating and questioning the sources they look at, I go to marketing websites and I look at what they promise their customers. And that I find is the most eye-opening thing. Um, I'll go to like a bunch of marketing uh, um consultant websites and things like that and what they promise their customers in terms of um sales ad click views is exactly what you're talking about but it's so fascinating to see it from the perspective of the people who are saying yeah let's do this let's let's social engineer our audience um yeah so ooh, i hear you on that yeah i mean even if you're talking about just like marketing strategies i mean there is there are terms that are extremely sexist and then extremely racist in the marketing world that people use there's a term like you know uh shrink it and pink it which literally means um we'll take the same product make it pink make it a small size smaller or, or a little bit smaller and upcharge women 
to buy the same thing. You could talk about, um, you know, feminine razors. Oh, there's the, the list of things that goes on and on. There's a specific reason why you'll see fast food change specifically advertising to people of color. The, the, there are, you know, very, 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 um, I don't even know what the PC way to say it was, but I guess just terrible things that happen in the world of marketing to social engineer and specifically target people. Um, and I think on some level, it really comes down to, you know, uh, a trickle down effect of, you know, some parts of Western civilization. I think there are parts of Western civilization and it's not everybody, but there are aspects of it that say you are worth more than you. And I think when you kind of fall into that narrative, then the lines become much easier to cross and it, and it becomes much easier to treat someone less than or look at someone as just a means or a tool or a revenue stream than um, human beings. So. Yeah, one of the things that we as teachers have as our, hopefully our goal, but I think one of the one of the important things that we do is to try to expand the definition of humanity, right? In a sense, is that if if our students leave our classes, no, first of all, knowing more about themselves and knowing more about other people, and you know, being able to see the humanity in the other people around them and the other people in the world, then I think that that's a good countermeasure to exactly what you're talking about, because those things are pervasive. And I mean, they're downright evil, right? This is like, you know, we're, we're not neutral on that topic. These are, these are things that people should not be doing, but they have justified to themselves as a means to an end, which is money, power, influence, whatever. Um, and I think something that's interesting that we brought up is the, the words that a lot of marketing executives or marketing companies use when they market to other companies or when they market to other marketers or whatever it is. And a lot of the stuff is what's so interesting is a lot of it is the same psychology and the same uh, ethnography and the same social science and even the same critical thinking principles that we're trying to have our students use to disentangle the truth from all this fiction, right? Is that the same sort of process a someone creating an advertisement uses to trick you, they're basically employing logical fallacies or they're basically employing certain types of syllogistic uh, constructs that you can teach someone to disentangle and to unpack and to see through. And it's, it's a, it's cool that we're able to do that. I mean, I, I don't always succeed at doing it, but it's cool that um, we actually do have the tools, even though we don't have the money, we don't have the big data, and we don't have the algorithms to, to make it easier. But we do have a lot of those same tools, because those tools are concepts. And, and as a teacher, that's sort of our currency. And so hopefully, that would give us a great starting point. At least I hope so. That's sort of what I'm, where my brain is going listening to, to all this awesome discussion. 
This is all really, really fascinating, especially moving forward and thinking about some of the more important elements of teaching critical information literacy. I know even for myself, um, going all the way back to what Camilla said in the beginning, that we now have to be our own filters um, and really moving forward and teaching our students how to be their own filters and really being just aware of all this, um, especially when we talk about um, echo chambers and the, the fact that we can filter so much out, we do, there is a tendency then to, to filter just what we want to hear, even if it's not accurate or right, um, and surround ourselves with people that just sort of echo back our own beliefs. Um, and I, I really feel that um, something like college, and especially community college, um, is one of the last few places where you can um, challenge ideas and talk about these things and maybe sort of, you know, get out of those echo chambers. Um, so looking into the future, um, what do you all see as the most important elements moving forward? What does the future look like for journalists, students, all of us? Um, I, I'm going to tackle the first part of that question. Um, and then we can have a little back and forth. Um, so the I, I see the most important element in teaching critical information literacy is to um to really embrace like the very messy work of seeing the institutions that exert power over information creation and consumption consumption. Um, and it is messy because these are the things that we've been told to trust, the things that we see our parents trust, you know. Um, it is difficult and messy to watch, you know, a loved one consuming information that you know is misleading, is harming them. Um, that's very difficult. And um, I think that the, the, pro the, the skills needed to teach critical information literacy, things that I'm working on that I'm no expert on, but I'm trying, um, I think it's a lot of the same skills that it takes to talk about um, systemic issues like systemic inequality. Um, it's the same thing here, like with information, what are the systemic things that um, contribute to inf uh, uh, information being used to oppress people or lack of information being used to oppress people? It's being okay to ask those questions. Um, I think a key element is being okay to, to challenge the status quo. Um, and then questioning whenever information seems tailored for you, why is it? Is it tailored for you because it's upholding a status quo? Um, and questioning like, why do I feel comfortable in, in libraries? Were they made for people like me, you know? And what does that say? Um, uh, and asking all those, those questions, which get some really, really, really deep roots. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my, what I'm working on myself, and it's going to be a long, long process, um, but kind of the most important elements to start teaching in a, in a, in a critical information um, literate way. Um, for me, I think, you know, what the future of journalism and, you know, the future of um, critical information learning and, and, and a lot of things I think that we've talked about today really boils down to DEI, you know, like diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think if the way we teach is homogenized and the way we learn will be homogenized and the voices that are heard from that type of education Will also in a certain way be homogenized or people will feel excluded from it and feel that that their voice is invalid so I 
I truly believe that um, to kind of really piggyback off of the incredible words that Kamala said was that it really does kind of, for me, that's where I see the future of it. I, I feel that without um, the way we do a lot of things becoming more diverse, without, you know, closing the gap on the starting line where um, students, you know, are learning things without including the voices and, and aspects that all students are doing that I don't think that we're gonna see a real change or real progress. Because I think, you know, I'm a strong believer that nobody has the answer to any solution, but um, we could find the answer to any solution. So I, I really believe that and, I, and, and that's something that I've really always found to be true in my experiences. So I really think it, it, it really requires bringing everyone to the table because if you get students more involved, you create the next crop of good educators and those good educators hopefully become the next batch of good administrators and then, and so on and so on. And, uh, you know, maybe one day in our lifetime, we'll see um, misinformation extinguished and it become something of the past that um, laugh at. But unfortunately, progress is very lit, rarely a linear line. Um, it is probably more like uh, an exchange fund on a stock market. It's more zigzaggy and up and down with a lot more peaks and valleys. But um, I'm the optimist in me hopes that even if it goes up and down, it still moves forward and slightly up um, eventually and it better. So that's kind of my answer to um, So to leave everyone with a final thought, some plugs I wanna get in there. Um, uh, I'll do a quick reminder of the library services that are going on right now. So you can tell all your students. Um, so first up, the library chat is always hopping. Um, that's the speech bubble on our library webpage. And um, the nice thing about that, unlike a lot of universities, is that chat is staffed only by ECC librarians. It's not staffed by librarians at other colleges, um, which a lot of universities and other colleges do. It is just us. Um, so it's like being with family, which I really love. Um, remember too that students can pick up library books and sheet music on campus now. Um, all that information is detailed on our webpage. Just go there for everything, but you can come and pick up things. Um, and then on our uh, library webpage, just check out the link that says library online guide because that's where I personally am editing on the back end and adding all this information. So there's info there on how to get books, how to get sheet music, how to access the chat, um, how to talk to our Canvas assistants, our tutoring Zoom, all of that. Um, so keep your students coming to the library. We are like there virtually, but we are there and um, just always active and ready to help the students. This has been another episode of the Virtual Hallway Podcast. Check out our past episodes on Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts.